Welcome to another edition of the Scotland's Choice podcast. The journey to our referendum is underway, so join us as we discuss how together we can build a fairer, more equal and more prosperous Scotland. Our goal is to ensure that our listeners are informed, that they're encouraged to get involved and will hopefully inspire others to think about the possibilities for Scotland. Because... As our country renews, we need to choose our own future before somebody else chooses it for us. I'm your host, Drew Hendry MP, and in this episode, I'm in conversation with Gavin Newlands MP. Gavin has represented Paisley in Renfrewshire North since 2015 and shadows the Secretary of State for Transport. He started his working career in McDonald's and is a vocal fan of most sports, having played rugby before any injury halted his career. And he's also an outspoken St. Johnson diehard fan when it comes to football. He chairs the White Ribbon All-Party Group on Male Violence Against Women and was the leading voice in Parliament against fire and rehire tactics. Gavin Newlands, thank you for joining us on Scotland's Choice. Thanks very much for inviting me. Gavin, we're living through a period of uh, time where we're witnessing empty shelves, petrol stations facing shortages of supply, rising energy prices and many industries and sectors uh, losing staff in numbers we've never seen before. What, in your view, are the reasons for this? Well, Brexit. Um, not to put too fine a point on it, Drew. Um, obviously, the pandemic. We hear the UK government blame the pandemic. For but the, the UK government say the UK government says nothing to do with Brexit. This is just a. Well, I think they're talking cobblers, and I think um, <laughs> um, the dogs in the street can see that um, they're talking cobblers um, about this. At the end of the day, we and uh, industries, in fact, all industries have been warning for years about the potential impact of Brexit on uh, on jobs and on supply chains, etc., mm-hmm. etc. Et um, I mean, my predecessors uh, in my role as transport spokesperson, including yourself, were warning for the last few years about this. My predecessor on the committee, Transport Committee, has been warning about it. Um, as a, in terms of like HGV drivers and what have you, these issues do go back a long time. Mm-hmm. Um, and the industry itself is not blameless, clearly. Uh, terms and yeah, conditions it, have been eroded it, over the years, etc. etc. It, it, um, it, is, it is fair to say that across EU nations, there are issues with HGV driver shortages. This you know, it's not um, the UK in isolation, but it's so much worse here, isn't it? Oh, absolutely. At the, at the end of the day, there are shortages in Poland and in Germany, but the one key difference is you don't see empty shelves. You're not seeing disruption to supply mm. chains uh, because they are uh, part of Europe. So there's European drivers from other from other parts of Europe and beyond um, who are uh, taking up slack and making deliveries. Yeah, I'm going to come back to that in a wee minute, but um, let's just stay on this um, shortage of HGV drivers. Sure. As I've said, it's so much worse in the UK, and we've just touched on the fact that there are, you know, are things happening uh, elsewhere, but not to the same extent. The, the, there are historical reasons uh, why uh, there is a problem getting HGV drivers as well into the industry. This has been sure. well documented, and obviously Brexit is. Uh, been a had a huge impact on it. it. If the Scottish government had had the powers um, that the UK government has had to act in this area, how could we have done better uh, with if we'd been an independent country? Well, I would like to think this goes just beyond the driver uh, issue. I would like to think that um, if had Scotland being, a, being an independent country, we'd have a much more progressive employment legislation. So the wages wouldn't have been as low in the sector. 
um, for one, because clearly the, there have been multiple issues, terms and conditions within the sector um, have been eroded over a number of years, uh, facilities for drivers, but it's that issue, it's the it's the wages, the long time away from home, the fact that they're allowed to work for such mm-hmm. lengths of, of time um, that I think if had we been independent, we would, in fact, I'm introducing a bill to, to, to devolve, short of independence at the moment, to devolve um, all employment mm-hmm. legislation to Holyrood um, in order that Holyrood, we can make those decisions um, and we can have um, we can have different rules, not just for drivers, but right across the uh, industry to, to ensure that terms and conditions for all uh, workers in Scotland are, are uh, a lot better than they are at the moment. Mm-hmm. And of course, you know, we've, we've no powers over the driver and vehicle licensing uh, side yes. or uh, any of the kind of training things and the costs involved. And I know this is, you know, I mean, these issues around HGV drivers have been raised since 2015 and the, the Westminster Parliament, as you say, not only by yourself, but uh, by your predecessor and uh, spokesperson, Alan Brown, indeed by myself, uh, doing that. Uh, this isn't a, a new issue, but we've also been warning about the context of Brexit for quite a long time. Uh, the UK's making plans to relax visa rules, as you said, for holidays to try and solve some of the issues, but that relies on attracting EU workers. Uh, you said, look, it's a three-month scheme. What, why would EU drivers choose to go through all of the hoops instead of working in one of the other 27 EU countries? Uh, pass. Uh, <laughs> I, I, don't, I don't know why they, why they would choose to do it. I mean, the wage differential would have to be massive mm-hmm. to put up with um, a lot of the issues they face. I mean, they've not got short memories. They, they can uh, remember the lorry parks and been parked up and been treated very poorly. Um, around the time of um, uh, Brexit, they're, they're not daft, and there's shortages. There's no shortage of work for drivers across the across the continent. So to come here, this is, this is, to face this the is delays. The, that, right. This this is the Marston uh, kind of car park yes. you're talking about here, where there's quite frankly inhumane conditions for yes. lorry drivers. Uh, when when you've got members of the public turning up to hand food hmm. through a fence. Um, to drivers, that that really sums the situation up. Um, it was appalling and quite frankly uh, embarrassing um, for this country to, to see drivers treated uh, in such a fashion. Um, but but three months, at, at the very least, at the very least, um, you might have tempted a handful with six months, perhaps, um, mm-hmm. despite all the issues that they, they'll face in terms of delays at the border um, and and obviously the, the limits that we have with the the changing rules between. Uh, European Union and, and the UK as well, um, but in reality, you need at least a year. In fact, Angus Robertson, the Scottish Government Minister, has said that these, these schemes, mm. not just for drivers, have to be two years. And exactly. he's right because yeah. it's pointless. The RHA have said, the Road Haulage Association have said that even with allowing for the increasing pace of of training drivers and, and trying to get them through the system, at the pace that the, the, the industry is losing drivers as well, it will take about or at least two years to get to a situation where we've actually got enough domestic drivers um, to, in order to, to take the capacity we have. So two years would seem to be an absolutely perfect length of time. Do, do you think it's a particularly Tory thing to say, come and help us save Christmas, um, and then say that the scheme ends on the 24th of December? So save Christmas, but you can't stay here for that Christmas. You're... Off back is it? There's no. It, there's a reason why the Dutch HGV union have said they're not going to recommend this to their members, isn't there? 
Yes, it's well. You could call it joy. You call it. You could call it British exceptionalism. I, I don't know what you could call it, but um, it's certainly a, a slap in the face mm. to, to to drivers to to ask them to come here and do us a favour. That's what mm. today. That's what we're asking. We've caused. I say we. UK government um, have caused a, a, a massive burr, um and we're asking European drivers to bail us out. Um, but but please be on your way by Christmas Eve. Mm. Or, or, um, but it's 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 a joke. It really is. And of course, the the the, the costs for uh, people to transport things have gone through the roof. It's far more difficult to move uh, goods around. As we said right at the beginning here, there's empty shelves and things like that. We've seen the disruption at petrol stations. It's not because of a lack of petrol. There's enough there. What is happening is that there's the 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 UK government have shot the industry in the foot by basically saying the lifeline that we did have to keep it kind of patched together. Uh, is just being pulled away. Let me move on to something very different just now, but um, in future we should need this and anybody planning for a long-term uh, view of uh, how we move goods around should be thinking about this. Maritime transport links are one area where Scotland could vastly expand their network. Uh, you know, For example, we only need to look at what Ireland's done in the wake of Brexit with new uh, ferry routes directly to the, the EU now, bypassing the UK. How can Scotland bolster its links with the continent post-independence? Well, we've heard for many years about potential reintroducing passenger services and indeed freight services from the south, um, for instance, to um, to the continent. And to, to my mind, particularly um, in light of Brexit, particularly in light of Brexit, partly for the reason you've outlined in terms of Ireland, the fact that uh, the red tape and the cost involved of, of coming through um, the UK, um, obviously it's, it's a no-brainer for the Irish to have set up direct services. Um, and in my view, that's where uh, where we'll be as well in terms of um, in terms of independence. And if I'm honest, um, and I'll hold my hands up as a, as a transport spokesperson as well, um, maritime and, and maritime links with the EU and beyond are something that we just, we just don't talk about mm. enough and certainly I don't talk about enough and it's, I uh, certainly pledge to do more about it in the in the coming you know, weeks and months because uh, ultimately it's a, uh, it's not only desirable, it, it's actually going to be essential mm. um, both to keep trade flowing freely and perhaps open up new markets with those improved um, direct connections from whether it's for South or from uh, the West Coast, I, I'll, my colleague in Inverclyde may not forgive me if I don't <laughs> mention Greenock yeah. as, a, as a potential port to, to go out to the, uh, the West and the Far North and, and what have you. These were traditional shipping routes back in the uh, day, yeah. yeah. Absolutely. Mm -hmm. I mean, that's, we established ourselves as mm -hmm. one of the first trading nations in the world through maritime mm -hmm. uh, kind of activities and and. And I, I think we've kind of lost some of that mm -hmm. uh, and we need to reclaim it. Um, and I suppose from that point of view, it starts with people like me talking about it and talking up a lot more. Well, you, you talked about Recythe. I mean, that's an obvious, uh, you know, potential link. And, you know, I think it's one that we really haven't pushed uh, far enough. But I think people also forget that, you know, the north of Scotland has links to Northern Europe, you know, really short links uh, to Northern Europe to the Scandinavian countries, and uh, you and, and you know when you look at where, for example, uh, Scapa Flow is, that's on the Great Arc, uh, you know, one yeah. of the shortest routes to uh, the US um, as well over or by any any uh, manner of means. So, 
you know, so there is real potential there for, you know, kind of a, a real kind of fresh look at uh, maritime transport. Absolutely. It's got to be a bigger part of the mix mm-hmm. um, for us. I mean, we've, we've got, I mean, geographically and where we're located is, is absolutely perfect mm-hmm. um, to make use of, to make use of that location. And we certainly haven't sit in, sit well in the last hundred years. We probably haven't uh, made enough of, of, of our position. Um, and it's time we, we did so again. So I absolutely, um, totally agree with your point. And um, as a as a, an MP for the for the for the high north of Scotland, do you make a, a fair <laughs> point about the, the ports of the high north as well? Exactly. You know, but all of that will uh, depend on us being able to develop other internal uh, transport uh, links. And you know, for example, to to take full advantage of that, we'll need to do more with road and rail. Scotland already has a a vast road network with many specific needs. It's quite a complex road network. And under the kind of UK structures under Westminster, we've been held back. And that's noticeable because uh, until devolution, you know, the very little was done. You know, you, you, you refer to me being a Highland uh, MP. You know, it's only under the, the SNP Scottish government that we've seen the duelling of the A9 um, company. There was no sign of that before under Westminster. So we've seen the Scottish government move to improve things. How, how can independence uh, within the EU uh, as a member state uh, help to uh, improve things in the future? Well, you only have to look at islands now to see mm. how things can be improved in the future. The the road network in, in Highlands um, has improved massively over the last um, 20 30 years and that essentially um, was largely down to EU because it had been neglected for such a long time prior to devolution and indeed um, to some degree post-devolution by uh, Scottish, by previous incumbents um, in office at at Holyrood. Um, But all the funding um, that drove a lot of those Mm. improvements came from uh, European Union schemes. Now, we hear of this uh, so-called levelling up fund and all of the other funds that the UK government are, are allegedly replacing the European Union structural funds with, but we know we know for a fact um, that a they're not going to spend anywhere as much. B um, that the that Scotland in of itself is not going to get as much as it would have done had it been part of the European Union. And C, frankly, in terms of the road networks in the Highlands and, and, and islands where it made the most difference, they're going to get a fraction. Um, I would say, if anything, if I would all. hope, maybe I'd be naive <laughs> that there'll be something, there'll be scraps yeah. on the table, yeah. but um, but it'll be a fraction of what we would what we would get as an independent country well, in the it, EU. And it, as a matter of fact, actually, Highland has gone from being at the top of the list for investment under the EU to the bottom of the list uh, under the UK. I mean, it's quite extraordinary that they're, uh, you know, they're not even looking at bus transport as part of the criteria. Uh, in the UK, but you, you he had, were, he had, he had the audacity not to elect yeah. a Conservative MP in the, in the Highlands. That's the issue. <laughs> That's, that must be it. But you, you, you were talking about the EU investments. I mean, one of the iconic things that we can see in terms of uh, the transport network in less favoured areas, as we were called back in those days, uh, was the the Keswick Bridge. We, we wouldn't have had the Keswick Bridge without 
the EU that Westminster was going to do nothing about it. So they would have either been the choice of getting a ferry across from Inverness or using the you know, the windy road round through uh, Bewley. And it, it's incredible to think that was only in the 1980s that that uh, came through. Yeah. Since since the evolution, we've seen, obviously, the Scottish government referred to the A9 earlier. We can talk about the Queen's Ferry crossing, the Borders Rail Link, uh, all of those things being done with the limited powers of uh, devolution. Uh, but there really is a, a need to kind of get those full powers so that we can start to really uh, make sure that we're making the right choices, the right green choices, indeed, uh, for the future, isn't there? Absolutely. And, and obviously, in terms of, we talk about the road, uh, road infrastructure and road network, and clearly, uh, irrespective um, of the decarbonisation of transport, of which I've been a huge champion indeed. In fact, we've, we've both um, changed to electric cars uh, over the last um, a couple of years or so, so I'm, I'm very much part of that. But clearly, roads, um, are, the road infrastructure is going to have to be um, good enough to ensure that p- people and businesses get, can get around. But in terms of uh, the wider decarbonisation picture in Scotland, I think we're in a, a pretty good place. We've got a, a, a very ambitious and progressive um, Scottish government, and, and to be perfectly frank, we had an ambitious and progressive Scottish government in, on, on these issues even prior to our agreement and uh, with the the Green Party. So mm-hmm. that will only kick on um, from here in terms of in terms of our ambitions. And if, if I was just challenging the, yeah. the Secretary of State for Transport the other week, if you're to contrast and compare uh, both Scottish uh, government ambition and delivery thus far versus UK government, there's, it's night and day. Night and day yeah. uh, between the two governments. But you know, we we can't talk about you know having green transport without talking about public transport. Public sure. transport in Scotland is highly subsidised. The population imbalance me- imbalance means it's often expensive to provide in many areas. It's also fragmented. There are many private companies uh, you know involved in this. We we see with the uh, with the rail franchises that ScotRail is going to be uh, a public. Uh, you know, franchise company uh, next week. That's, uh, you know, within the powers of the Scottish government that, that they can use there. What what opportunities do you see for further reform of public transport after independence? Well, uh, obviously, being from a fair enough from the city of Inverness, but representing a largely a rural area, um, clearly you know that bus services um, have been an issue. Um, for some time and have, have been essentially deteriorating since uh, since Margaret Thatcher deregulated buses uh, back in what, probably the mid-80s. I, I'm not, I was only born in 1980, Drew, but I, I think it was mid-80s <laughs> that they were deregulated. But, um, but it's been progressively getting worse since. Bus fares have been increasing um, at the same time as the services have been have been reduced in footfall. Un, unsurprisingly, given um, those conditions has been going down as well. So um, that is a, the next um, target area for the Scottish Government and obviously they brought forward a, Scottish government brought forward a bill on this issue um, recently. Uh, I would love to see, uh, I, mean, I think we'll touch on network rail and other mm-hmm. issues as well, but I would love to see a more integrated approach. Mm-hmm. Um, that's potentially easier in a more yeah. urban environment than it is in the, uh, in the rural setting, but we need to see um, if we have to drive people mm. out of cars and into public transport, we need to make it a viable option, not just in terms of cost. And, and by that, I don't mean 
that we have to um, hammer drivers all the time. There has to be a good balance of carrot and stick in order to, to move drivers on to public transport. But you can't expect people to move on to public transport if that's going to take them mm-hmm. three, four times longer to, to make those journeys than it, than it is um, in a car and potentially even at the same or, or even more expensive cost. Um, so in, in my view, we need to try and um, look at making public transport viable in terms of mm-hmm. cost but also trying to integrate the public transport. And we're doing a lot in terms of active travel yeah. and trying to make it easier to get to public transport uh, and marry that up. And that's brilliant. I mean, to continue that investment, in fact, probably will continue that investment. It's going to be a massive um, focus of the Scottish Government over the next few years. You, you, um, men- you mentioned you mentioned the Margaret Thatcher deregulating the uh, buses there and the chaos. I wish I hadn't. The, <laughs> the chaos that that led to one of the, one of the companies that survived that uh, deregulation uh, quite famously was uh, what is now uh, Lothian uh, Buses, um, and that grew out originally out of the corporation in Edinburgh. Uh, so it was a real kind of publicly owned service, and that was built not not at the time with a name on profit, but with a name to provide a service, a properly linked up service that made sure there was a a real network that people would use. And lo and behold, over the years, it's become a very highly profitable uh, and efficient system. So it can be done, um, but it just needs that kind of ability to uh, focus on it and uh, and to do something very, very different with it. The Scottish Government's given powers now to local authorities um, to look at doing, replicating that kind of example, isn't it? Yes, it has, um, and we have, we have to look at the wider picture. These these are difficult times for not just local authorities, but mm. um, uh, Scottish government and indeed in fairness, UK government in terms of um, finances. So uh, you're not going to suddenly see um, a, a Strathclyde buses as it would as it would, it would have been back in the day, um, suddenly jumping out of, of Glasgow City Council or indeed um, the wider Glasgow area, for instance. Um, the Glasgow City region area, um, as was um, previously, but as it, it's a real uh, opportunity for councils to to start that process. Mm-hmm. Start small. Let's start by by trying to improve services in some of the outlying areas, particularly in, in local authority areas, um, and then obviously we can progressively, or I would hope, uh, progressively look to increase these uh, the amount of services that these businesses can. Or, ultimately will be businesses um, run by uh, local authority they can increase in size in the, in the future mm-hmm. at the end of the day one of the reasons that, that these public services or bus services was, was deregulated there was the, they were poorly run and they were losing lots of money at the end of the day these have to these things have to be run well um in order to to function and to grow so that there has to be that mindset losing buses wouldn't be where, where it is had it had it not been run well um, had it been run perhaps in a, a, a more kind of wasteful way uh, mm-hmm. as might have been, it, it wouldn't be one of the most successful bus companies and uh, most popular bus companies in the UK. I don't know how many awards Lothian has won. Uh, certainly on the West Coast, I look over at Lothian buses with uh, jealousy. Um, but we have to start somewhere. Uh, and I would hope that, um, certainly look at Renfrewshire, I would hope that those services start uh, in, in the villages where the biggest erosion of services um, has been seen. We, we touched very briefly on ScotRail there and I want to come back to that in a moment or two but you also mentioned the fact that you're now an electric 
vehicle owner. Um, a lot more people are now interested in electric vehicles and the, the work in Scotland's been done, uh, well, there's been a heavy investment in making sure that charging facilities are available for people. But there's obviously a lot more that we could do to encourage the folk on. What, what could we do better with powers uh, to do so? Well, if you look at what Scottish Government are doing just now with the powers they have at the moment relative to the UK, um, the fact that we are top, topping up um, the charger grants that are available from, mm -hmm. from the UK Government, essentially doubling the, the grant that's available, um, but crucially uh, offering the interest-free loan that we do at the moment for new cars, that's twenty up to £28,000 now for a new car, mm -hmm. but crucially there's also £20,000 interest-free loan for used cars because obviously there's now been electric vehicles on the road for for a few years. That, that used market really needs a boost. Um, so I'm, I was really pleased when the Scottish Government yeah. introduced that and as uh, was the industry, because ultimately if we're trying to drive people from combustion engine cars to electric or zero emission cars, um, then you need a you need a carrot and stick, but certainly when the cost is very, is very high, that carrot needs to be a, a, mm -hmm. a reasonable size. And the UK government just continually want to erode that carrot. They seem to think that the the, the, the sector is ready um, for the market to essentially um, uh, to be effective yeah. and mm -hmm. to, to reduce the cost to, to that level. So uh, the signs are there that with the powers that Scottish government already has, uh, that if we were to have um, all the powers at our disposal, uh, we could really, really drive that yeah, forward. You only have to look at what Norway have done. Um, and I suppose one example might be, um, in terms of the, the why the incentive in this area is still so required, if you look at just a few months ago, six, seven, probably seven months ago now, the UK government, without warning, um, cut it, cut the, the grant again mm -hmm. um, for, yeah. the, for new cars, um, which is now essentially now half of what it was just a few years ago, so it's down to two, two and a half um, thousand pounds. So in the six months prior to the Treasury cutting that grant, um, which happened again without warning to um, to anyone, purchase or the industry, uh, no one knew it was coming. Mm. Um, the growth in sales of full battery electric, which is obviously the best um, in, in terms of uh, zero emissions, they outstripped hybrids by 73%, or the growth in those sales mm -hmm. outstripped hybrids by 73%. But in the six months after they cut um, they cut that grant, and it's only, it's only £500, but it's all about the signal that it sends, not just that fact, but yeah. the, the ongoing support for the sector. Um, the growth in hybrid sales out, um, outstripped full electric by 800%. I mean, that is just a massive shift essentially overnight in the, in, the, in, the, in the sales of those cars. So it shows the importance of, um, whilst there's still a, a fairly large cost um, discrepancy uh, between combustion engine cars, petrol and diesel cars and electric cars, that you still need a fairly substantial carrot. You, you certainly need the cost to come down before you start start trying to use any well, you, sort of sticks. Well, you mentioned, you mentioned Norway there and you know what they've managed yeah. to do as very similar size country to Scotland with very similar Absolutely. resources has been uh, nothing short of an exemplar because I think if I'm correct, over 50% now of their, uh, their cars are electric uh, vehicles and uh, and they've really gone for making it a priority to shift people to electricity. So not only did they have an oil fund, not only did they produce 
all of their energy needs from renewable sources. So they're exporting their uh, their energy now, but they've also got you know the a, a majority of electric vehicles on the road. So they're making great strides there, and we could do the same. Absolutely, at the end of the day, a small independent country free to um, spend the resources as they see yeah. fit. Um, and, and ultimately, if you, if you look at, I mean, at this area, if you if you, if you look at how um, the planet consequentials work, if we were to spend this, the same amount of money on things like the charging network, mm. um, uh, or indeed um, interest grants or interest fee loans or all of that, if we were to just mm. um, spend as much as the UK government did, our charging network would be would be half the size essentially mm, yeah. than it currently is. Not because essentially because of the cost. Um, of in Scotland's geography and what have you, so we've already tried to spend as much as we possibly can on those progressive and decarbonisation you know, agenda. But ultimately, we are held back um, okay. by uh, being in this union. I, I said I wanted to come back to rail with you. Um, one area uh, of uh, retraction um, in the UK at rail networks has been ongoing since the 1960s um, from there. But we're, we're now starting to see investment again. The UK is investing very, very heavily in HS2, uh, which doesn't reach Scotland, of course. It doesn't get to us. Um, you, you, what, what does that say about the priorities within the UK and you know how could we do again? How could we do better as a as an EU nation in the future as an independent EU nation? Well, it, it's a bit of a mess, um, quite frankly. I mean, the UK government are under uh, a lot of pressure um, from uh, from their own side mainly when it comes when it comes to um, HS two. I mean, if you look at the, the project, I mean, I'm all I'm all for high speed rail and in, in and of itself. Um, I think it's ridiculous it's taken uh, the UK decades longer than other European countries to have a high-speed network that would be a, pro- a, be a decent alternative to mm. um, to flying. Because uh, ultimately, at the end of the day, it's still four and a half hours to get from... It's a lot long, have a lot longer to get from your part of the Indeed. <laughs> um, to London um, by rail. Um, so I'm for high-speed rail in principle. Um, but just if you look at HS2, the phase 2B or not 2B, um, H, phase 2B, the northeast leg, um, we hear that the government are coy about it, but essentially we hear that it's being shelved. And at the end of the day, if, H, if phase 2B is being shelved, then you have to wonder if that line will ever get to the border. Because mm-hmm. um, there is an, an understanding that it will at some point be extended to the border, but I, I, I have my doubts if that actually will happen um, in the end. And, uh, that's a shame. But in terms of the wider issue, uh, Scott, we've obviously got ownership of ScotRail and Scottish Government and clearly next year that will come back into, um, mm. to, be, to be publicly run and I'm looking forward to that. But with Network Rail, which is about to become GBR, Great, British, Great Britain Railways, um, still being reserved. And let's let's be clear, that is being, that's still reserved despite the uh, the evidence and advice to the mm. uh, to Williams uh, by the former transport minister uh, Tom Harris who who was on the advisory panel for that he advised that it should be devolved to Holyrood and yet fun enough yeah. um, that hasn't happened um, but yeah despite this and again this shows um, not just Scottish government but but um, ScotRail and 
uh, network beyond Scotland to show them a good light. The fact that the partnership working that, that exists, despite um, the constraints that they face, um, is still an exemplar to the rest of the UK. And I, th I think that could only improve mm -hmm. if we had full control um, of the network. Gavin, one uh, final question for you. Independence offers Scotland many opportunities across many areas. Transport, obviously, being a very important one. If you could see one main transport change to, to be implemented, what would that be and why? Oh, it's a, uh, that's a question. Um, I, where to put my constituency hat on because I've got the airport and um, all the rest mm. of it, but if I'm honest, my one uh, big issue in terms of, I think we're getting there on decarbonisation. I think Scotland's very much headed in the right direction. Mm. So um, assuming that that path continues and that we're going to spend 10% of transport budget on active travel uh, um, by the end of this parliament, yeah. um, which incidentally, by the way, the Secretary of State uh, Grant Sharps questioned um, he was boasting, and his plan boasts about spending two billion pounds over over five years on active travel. Um, but if you, if you look at Scotland's plans, um, by the end of this plan, we'll be spending effectively three three billion pounds a year. Mm. Um, so we're spending three hundred twenty million pounds. Which, if you um, aggregate that up to a, a UK spend, we're spending three billion pounds a year, or will mm. be spending three billion a year, and they're spending five billion over two years. But to answer to come back to your question. Uh, my big thing is, is about integration, because ultimately we want a, a public transport network uh, to be proud of and that people will use. Uh, I think that's um, that's the prize for me. We look at European partners in, in Germany and other places where they have a, a, a fantastic public transport network um, that is integrated. And when I talk about integration, I'm not just talking about making sure a bus, um, all being well, um, Buses will break down, there'll be traffic jams, but um, we'll at least plan to have integration, whatever else, so buses will uh, marry up with trains, etc, mm -hmm. etc. Et but, but also on a, a European level to try and integrate um, transport yeah. as much as we possibly can, because uh, to me that's the prize of of, of becoming independent and, and also and cutting out the middleman, um, because all the conversations, not just in transport, but in, in any other area, um, when the UK government are speaking on our behalf mm -hmm. uh, in, in Brussels and in Strasbourg yeah. and whatever else, it's almost always from a, a London perspective, and that never a London and southeast perspective. If you if you're talking about aviation as well, but it, very rarely um, for Scotland's benefit, um, and that's what I think the key prize will be when Scotland yeah. um, is independent and uh, is at European table. Gavin Newlands, thank you very much for joining me today on the Scotland's Choice podcast. Thank you very much. Well, there we have it. Whilst COVID has had an impact, the root cause of the HGV crisis is Brexit, where just two years ago, 44,000 EU nationals were employed in the UK. The UK government were warned again and again, but did nothing but push forward with Brexit. The visa offering they've made to EU nationals is insulting and ineffective and Scotland needs better. Independence could allow us to establish direct links with Europe and our Nordic neighbours and take forward our green transport ambitions. To reach the goal of an integrated transport network, we need the powers of independence. My thanks to Gavin Newlands MP for taking part and to you for listening. 
Don't forget you can find new and previous episodes of Scotland's Choice at scotlandschoice.scot. If you can share this podcast, it can help others with their decision on Scotland's future. I'm Drew Hendry and I hope you'll join me next time on Scotland's Choice.